session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 3104410555. Although I do have a guest who I'll introduce to you shortly, um, so won't be taking any calls at least for the first half of the show. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But let me introduce you to my guest, who is actually a very good friend, longtime friend of mine, uh, Dr. Scott Rauer, who is a clinical psychologist. He is currently in private practice in Oregon. He actually, uh, he and I went to graduate school together, so I know he got his master's degree and his PhD from Alliant International University. He works with clients in therapy and also teaches courses online to help people with chronic digestive disorders, and that's actually uh, what we will be discussing today. Um, He has done a lot of work in this area, but he wanted to talk about helping people with chronic digestive problems. So uh, let me bring him on. Dr. Rauer, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, sir. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, last time actually some longtime listeners might remember, I think it was four or five years ago. Yeah, you were on no to way. talk about um, uh, sleep issues, but I know also you've done a lot of work in chronic digestive disorders as well, which we're going to talk about. And um, to begin, you know, I know this is also a personal story for you, um, that you uh, have experienced some issues related to chronic digestive disorders. Whatever you'd like to share about that might help in, in giving people an idea of um, what got you into this area of psychology or uh, health. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so, as you mentioned, uh, we know each other from graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, became fast friends uh, the first year of the five years. Um, and in, within that, the whole program of getting the doctorate, there's kind of different tracks you can go down. Um, and one of the tracks in graduate school they offer you is health psychology. Mm-hmm. And I just found myself really interested in that. I didn't know really where that was gonna lead, but I just took some extra courses in health psychology uh, because I have a, a long history of health problems. Um, since I was a little kid, I've had um, different health issues. And, and with that, with that, I'm recognizing there was a bunch of um, some trauma of uh, just dealing with a lot of stuff um, at a very early age. And so it's just um, something that I've kind of integrated and kind of uh, worked with over time. Hmm. And actually back when we first met that first year of graduate school was 2006 and that was the year that I got diagnosed with what's called Crohn's disease um, it's in it's what's called an inflammatory bowel disease uh, where um, it's an autoimmune condition where my um, immune system is um, attacking in a, in a way my uh, the, the lining of my, di- my digestive tract and so it causes um, a lot of issues, and it's 
Um, there's no known cause of it, and there are a bunch of treatments but no cures. Mm. Um, so that my last 15 years of uh, working with that and trying to heal from this has just led to a lot of um, growth and understanding, uh, and and it's led me to a lot of uh, learning the last few years, especially. Um, and, and finding this whole field of uh, that I had no idea existed until somewhat recently, last few years, called psychogastroenterology. Uh, it's a whole field of research, and it, there's a bunch of evidence-based um, approaches from the mental health side that can really help people, uh, whether you have a, a disease like myself, um, inflammatory bowel disease, or someone that has something like IBS or reflux or dyspepsia. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I remember actually when we were in grad school, as you mentioned, we became close pretty quickly. There weren't also a lot of males in our, our program, so that also I think <laughs> made it a little bit easier. And I, I was very lucky. I was always grateful and still am that you were um, someone that was there and we, we got to be so close. Uh, and I remember you did start to experience some issues. You know, I think as you described, you weren't quite sure exactly what it was, although you got diagnosed with Crohn's, but you, I think we're also figuring it out. And I remember seeing you at times uh, dealing with that. And as you mentioned, what's unfortunate is with a lot of these types of autoimmune and sometimes GI issues, there isn't a clear cause or a clear known pathway that creates it to then treat that. But it also reminds you a lot of things in, in life in general. You can't completely take it away, but you can learn how to manage it and make things a lot better. So it never goes to zero pain or distress or worry, but it can become way less than it was. Uh, and it reminds you of sometimes I'm working with someone who's anxious and uh, they, they'll say something like, oh, I just want to get rid of my anxiety or not have any. And first of all, we need some anxiety. It's part of being human. But even still, if you have an anxiety disorder or dealing with serious anxiety, you'll probably never get rid of it completely. But you can learn how to manage it and deal with it in a way that will make it much less distressing in your life. And it seems like what you're saying is with some of these issues, it won't completely go away, but life can be a lot better than the, the suffering that people might currently be going through, which is why I know you wanted to talk about these issues, because like yourself, people are suffering and not knowing there's this help until you became more aware of it uh, recently. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is really... Um, uh, there's so much understanding on the research side and so little um, PR about this stuff. It helps so much to understand what's actually going on um, beyond just having symptoms like constipation or diarrhea or pain in, in your in your abdomen. Mm -hmm. um, what's going on behind the scenes in a lot of ways really helps to not only de-escalate um, all of the stress of it, but to be able to understand there are effective ways I can go about this beyond just taking some Imodium every day. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's where well, I'm like excited to talk to you about yeah. today. And it just, it's been a real passion for me. Um, and, and, you know, just, it, this has been a long journey for me. Um, back when we first met, I got that diagnosis, but I was honestly in denial for the, I would say probably two, maybe three years. I was drinking alcohol. Um, I was just continuing to drink alcohol, even though it was making things worse. I don't know if you remember, I would like come to class with like loaves of bread mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. to try and, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> to try and like eat something that would like calm my belly, um, but unbeknownst to me, it was just making things worse. Um, and at some point, though, I just really I hit rock bottom, and I just had this horrible. I still remember it. I had this horrible night, um, and I was just stuck in the bathroom. And I'll spare you the details, but I remember just being very clear with myself of like I cannot continue to live like this. This is just not. I, this is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so that really was a turning point for me. Um, and. Um, I started to really acknowledge it and and really take on eating much, much differently, a a very restricted diet um, that really impacted, has continued to impact my life still today, um, but is effective. Um, And then it was about eight years ago that I accidentally discovered really a big missing piece of the puzzle, which is what I want to talk to you about today um, and to your audience about, which is I started to meditate um, mostly for professional reasons, because, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, meditation, mindfulness meditation, particularly, uh, is a, it's a bit of a phenom right now, but it's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's not a fad. The research is very solid, and the research just continues to, to bolster it and make this a really um, support the robustness of this type of intervention. So in case I got into mindfulness meditation, really started to enjoy it and get deeper into it. And then I just kind of woke up at some point to this, oh my gosh, this is really helping my Crohn's disease. Hmm. And then I started to understand what was going on there and really identified that addressing the stress of my life in a more effective, in a deeper way was this big missing piece of the puzzle for me. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, obviously there's so much you said there that I want to comment on. I think we'll also get to go a little deeper in a lot of those aspects from the meditation to your own denial, because I think many people might experience that when you get a diagnosis like Crohn's autoimmune, uh, IBS, where it's so even the diagnosis and what you're hearing from the doctor can be vague or ambiguous. I think at times it can make people feel that well, there's nothing I can do, or maybe it's not even real. It feels less real than if you get a, let's say, conclusive blood test, or you get something that tells you, you know exactly what this is. It has a name and a treatment and a cause that we know. But when it's more vague and ambiguous, I could see that that leads to more denial and accepting what, what, you know, what, what is going on. But we'll get to that maybe later. I also just think taking a step back, what is interesting, and when you told me, uh, I know you were studying this, but in more detail to talk about on the show you know we we talk about the gut brain connection you hear a lot of things about that Uh, or just in general I think we try to separate so many things which I think is funny because then we now are recombining them but the problem was that we separated them to begin with that it's like so separate and like oh actually they're related so these two different things are related and maybe it's recognizing oh they were really one thing or you know it's hard to to really tease them apart Um, but uh, I've been reading a lot of books and other research is showing how much things like how you feel physically affect your judgment affect how you feel you know so many things and so when we try to separate this it it can get really complex um but it's a reminder that if we're not taking care of ourselves in all ways it's going to affect us in all ways as well so if you're not physically feeling good you can't emotionally feel great and again there's a gray area um, of how to differentiate that so i'm wondering if you yourself have experienced 
this kind of a change in how you feel overall or notice the f- how the physical that you were going through with the, the Crohn's and the digestive issues was significantly impacting your mood or how you felt like emotionally? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Um, when you like professionally help other people gain awareness, um, uh, and, and, and work through these deeper levels and you can get really good at that, you know, like when you're practicing it so much and you study and everything like that, but then you, the humility of sometimes seeing, oh my gosh, like I am, uh, helping these people, but I really need to, to kind of take some of my own medicine. Hmm. Um, I have just been a long time, um, uh, someone that has just placed so much emphasis in self-judgment and kind of hinged my self-worth on accomplishment and how much I have been struggling physically with this disease, but just completely overriding my body for this kind of need to continue to kind of accomplish and, and get things done and feel productive and feel effective in the world. When the reality is, um, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's farcical, you know, like what is all that trying to accomplish? Oh, so that I can, you know, uh, pay, get money to get to the best doctors in the world or whatever it might be so that I can heal from this when it's just, it's so much more immediately available if I, and it takes a certain amount of emotional um, courage and emotional maturity to just acknowledge that, you know, to be able to slow down, to kind of focus on these things um, because part of what I think we'll talk about here is when you um, have these kind of fight or flight response reactions it puts you into this um, physiological state oh did I lose you there for no I can hear you okay oh okay sorry no problem noise came in there Um, so it puts you into this kind of physiological state where you're making reactive decisions and anxiety and depression and stress affect you much more. And the reality is, is that's normal. You know, that is a, a normal thing. If you are, have lost control in the safety and certainty of your health, it is normal for your survival instincts to kick in. But what's not helpful is to let them just continue to run the show mm-hmm. and to um, you know, not take a step back and, okay, you know, I need to do something different about this or hmm. uh, maybe lean into some of these skills that we'll be going over. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, hearing you talk about the the denial and, and just the way that you felt that you were not aware, you know, you're focused on performance and achievement. And even if it was at the sacrifice or not even paying attention to how you were doing physically i think it's many people can be that way but especially people in helping type professions very often they already have a default where they're more focused and preoccupied with how others are doing or helping or taking care of someone else and disconnected from themselves i've actually gone through my own journey with that as well and so i could see how uh, meditation could have been so critical because it does in a way put that focus back on yourself and getting in touch with what you're feeling and experiencing and then you can you know first you have to know what's wrong to actually do something about it but oftentimes we're avoiding being in touch with that and it's still 
you know, wreaking havoc, but we're just not in touch with it to then do something about it. Um, you know, we're at a commercial break, but when we come back, we're, we're kind of just laying the foundation a bit. We can get more into, uh, you know, you, you shared about your experience, but also what you've learned about how we can help people with chronic digestive problems. And as we mentioned, that there is help and hope out there, which uh, I'm also looking forward to learning more from you, but hoping that people who might be dealing with this or know someone who's dealing with it can try to find resources to get some help. So my guest today again is Dr. Scott Rauer. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm joined again by clinical psychologist, Dr. Scott Rauer, and we're talking about helping people with chronic digestive problems. Um, so Dr. Rauer, maybe we can, you know, we've, you've talked about it in different ways, but just to now get into who we're even talking about, because I think having digestive problems or issues, everyone has some of them. Of course, when we're talking about chronic, that, that might be a little bit different, but maybe you can talk a bit about what we're even looking at here uh, when we're talking about mm -hmm. chronic digestive problems. Yeah, absolutely. So the two main things that uh, someone would go to go see the, uh, would go see their primary care doctor, the first one would be some physical symptoms that are related to stress. And the second would be uh, specifically digestive problems that very well could be related to the stress they're uh, experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so digestive symptoms, uh, this could be any range of things with uh, diarrhea that's chronic, uh, constipation, uh, bloating, gas, uh, unexplained abdominal pain, um, or on the uh, upper side of the GI uh, spectrum, there's reflux uh, type of symptoms, mm -hmm. heartburn, that type of thing. Got it. Yeah, and as you're you're talking, I'm sure everyone has experienced some of that at some time. So uh, I think that's another important point. I think most people know someone with probably even a more serious digestive problem, but everyone has some um, or has experienced it at some point. And I think going back to this mind-body connection or being more connected to our bodies, oftentimes if we pay attention, we might learn what's causing some of that? I'm sure to some level, you know, nothing's going to function perfectly. We'll always have some issues here and there. But I think a lot of people, I, I'm sure I can include myself in that, might not pay attention to some repeated type of symptoms they're having that if they pay attention, they'll realize like, oh, maybe it's when I eat this or eat at this time or, you know, do this. Or if I'm stressed and I'm, you know, I experience these type of symptoms, um, you know, becoming more aware and in touch with that, I think will be helpful for anyone, not just someone who experiences something that you'd consider a serious chronic digestive problem, but I think everyone uh, has some issues that they probably could learn something from what you're, you're talking about when it comes to the treatment. So as you mentioned, many people, yeah. oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to jump in on, on that mm -hmm. specifically, that th these conditions, um, not necessarily the inflammatory bowel diseases of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, but the whole spectrum is actually way more common uh, chronic digestive disorder or chronic digestive, let's say, issues are way more common than people realize um, because there's stigma attached to it. Mm -hmm. You know, people generally don't talk about gas and diarrhea that they can't seem to figure out what's, what's causing this. Mm -hmm. um, and so, unfortunately, it, uh, even when people go do seek out uh, help, um, oftentimes their primary care doctor 
can't find um, if it is, let's say, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. There is no scan, no scope, no blood test that's going to identify. Oh, this is what's going on. And oftentimes they kind of leave empty-handed. They're like, okay, here's some medication, but there's no real understanding or explanation. Um, and it, it leads further to the stigma of like, oh, it's because I'm too anxious mm. or whatever it is. And the people keep it to themselves. And unfortunately, they're, we're surrounded by other people having these struggles, but often keep it to ourselves and isolate around it. Mm. Yeah, and that, that's why I appreciate you coming on to share your knowledge and expertise, but also that you share your own story and experience, because I think you're right. I mean, there's stigma attached to mental illness, but also lots of different symptoms and GI symptoms in particular can bring about embarrassment. Um, you know, it's hard to talk about. We don't know how to, can we verbalize it? Should we talk about it? Um, and you'll talk about some of those things, I think, later as well about what people go through sometimes with GI issues that they makes them affect their, their lives and what, what kind of things they do and don't do. But you're absolutely right. I think that's uh, a tough thing. I've even worked with clients in therapy and when they talk about some physical symptoms, they even will say, can I tell you or should I or my, you know, or they apologize before they talk about um, certain types of like physical symptoms like you're talking about, like diarrhea or constipation or vomiting or something that, you know, is a bodily function or bodily function not quite going the way we want it to. Um, but I think even in therapy, I've noticed that uh, that stigma is there or that embarrassment. So I'm sure in general, we, we see that in people then they're, yeah, they're afraid to tell people and it might make them even more want to avoid things because they don't know how to tell their friend well because of this that I'm dealing with. Maybe, you know, we have to do this activity or could we do it this way or I have to make sure there's a, let's say, restroom close by or whatever it might be they, they need. Um, they might feel like they can't ask that and bring it up at all. So they'll just avoid the whole, you know, social aspect of life or at least some aspects of their social life because of that. So, yeah, I think like anything, um, one of the ways we break a stigma is by talking about it and showing that it doesn't have to be taboo and that millions of us are dealing with these things. So it's not something that just you're going through. So again, I appreciate you sharing both your expertise, but also your personal story to hopefully further that, uh, reducing that stigma and that taboo that's attached to these types of issues. You nailed it, man. That uh, one of the biggest things that uh, most people don't understand is you likely know someone mm -hmm. in your social circles that is dealing with significant GI issues, digestive issues, and they often, one of the, the things I hear so often is they don't leave their house. They don't like mm -hmm. to leave any place that they don't know where a bathroom is going to be and immediately how to get to it. And there is no reaching out for support for understanding it's they don't want you know this I, i've been shamed <laughs> but, you know of like talking about being open about having chronic diarrhea and people responding of like oh that's gross mm. you know and so that that hurts you yeah. know that i my mind takes that in as i'm gross mm. mm -hmm. you know and it's understandable to not for people not want to share that vulnerably um and or to really restrict their lives down to this the certainty of I'm not going to have an accident mm -hmm. I'm not going to get caught somewhere so I, I'm not going to let myself travel I'm not going to go eat out with friends I'm not going to whatever and you know their friends their family probably doesn't understand what's going on they mm -hmm. just think they're they're being avoided right 
And of course, the the shame that's there because of the outside pressure makes it so much harder. And it just reminded me when you're saying they just to make sure they don't have an accident or ensure that a lot of parts of life, we have these experiences where if we want to protect ourselves from some kind of pain that might happen, we also prevent ourselves from experiencing so many things. So if someone's like, well, I never want to get my heart broken. So, you know, then they never enter a relationship or put their feelings into a relationship. And so um, hopefully people can learn that we can tell our friends but that means that if you're the one hearing it as you said responding uh, how you respond will be critical you know so you're saying you shared it with some people i'm sure some have responded favorably and made you feel accepted loved and felt good about it others might have laughed or ridiculed or said something that and now you're like well i can't tell them and you might be more uh, uncomfortable or reluctant to tell the next person which is which is unfortunate so i'm, I'm glad we're talking about it and i hope people see this is just part of being a a human being or any really animal we have these physical things that happen that take care of our body and sometimes it does some things that maybe aren't as comfortable but really everyone has experienced i think any of those symptoms you've listed at some point you know heartburn diarrhea constipation those kinds of things it's not something that only some people experience really as human beings which reminds you of just these bigger things in general like being sad or being anxious and how well, oftentimes people feel this shame of sharing negative feelings or what we call negative feelings and so unfortunately we're all going through it but then we're all hiding it which just makes us all suffer more in silence as a result so um again i think it's important okay. to recognize the yeah kind of the ubiquity everyone is going through these types of things while at the same time not saying oh we all go through it equally because some people are dealing with some really serious chronic digestive problems that um, are affecting their life significantly so it's not to say we all go through it the same but that it is something human that we all experience to different degrees um so you know if you wanted to when we're talking here about helping people with chronic digestive problems what what can they do what are um things that are out there i'm sure there's a lot of medical things but then also i know especially from the psychological side you have a lot to, to add to that so what would you tell the someone who's coming to you and says hey i'm having some gi issues i know that's like a big whole thing but mm -hmm. i'm wondering what you would say to them or what you would recommend yeah um so there are specific evidence-based um suggestions or tools but the first thing we would start with is i would want to share understanding mm -hmm. i would want whoever's struggling with these things to have a better sense of awareness of what's actually going on that is causing this symptom of diarrhea or bloating or vomiting. Mm -hmm. um, so really one, one of the best places to start here would be knowing that this is not something that just um, this psychologist uh, <laughs> is kind of coming up with my own theory here, whatever it is. Really, the, the reality is the best medical centers in the world that treats um, GI symptoms, uh, the Cleveland Clinic uh, in the U.S., the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, uh, the Gut Center in Australia, these places that the, the lucky people that can go to those places to get the best resources in the world for these problems, what they will be told at these centers is this is more than just your intestines. This goes beyond just these symptoms in your that are manifesting in your abdomen mm -hmm. and that specifically stress matters how you're handling 
the stress that, you know, of course life has stress, how you're handling it is a really key piece of the puzzle. And so we know that over the last few decades, there's all this research that the gut and the brain have a very strong connection. It's called the gut-brain axis or the gut-brain connection, you could just say. Um, so these disorders, um, whether it's IBS um, or reflux or uh, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, it's not just in your intestines. This is a true mind-body effect. And so you're, you need uh, mind, both medical and psychological skills to really address this fully. Mm. And so um, your gastroenterologist, if you end up needing to see one, they're a very specialized professional. They are experts at diagnosing um, digestive di diseases and disorders to provide the best up-to-date information and prescription for medications and, and surgery if needed. Um, but they can't do it all, right? They're, they're just one kind of perspective uh, in what they're taught in medical school is one perspective. Um, there are other elements here that there are, um, for inflammatory bowel diseases, there are some, there is some evidence of specific diets helping, but specifically, much more conclusively, um, if you have IBS, there is a diet called the FODMAPS diet, F-O-D-M-A-P-S, and that stands for uh, six different, or was that six or seven different carbohydrates that um, is empirically uh, proven that if you uh, do a FODMAPS diet, which is eliminating these specific types of carbohydrates, there's about a 70% chance that it's going to be significantly helpful, uh, significant improvement from following that. So there, that's one of, the, one of the specific tools here, but it really goes back to that big picture of wanting to understand that there's more than just meds and surgery. Um, there are diets, and beyond that, uh, it, which can be harder for some people to understand, there are psychological tools as well and how you're handling stress that's um, proven by research to be quite effective in, in a part of the puzzle. None of these things is a solution. They're all tools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure, yeah, none of them in isolation um, are going to be enough. And and we're not even talking about fully eliminating something. And, you know, there's definitely a holistic approach that you're describing, which we'll get into even more detail about the therapy, diet, mind-body skills, and things of that nature. But um, there is a Western mindset at times, which is like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I want and something's wrong with me, and then give me the pill that takes away the problem that my lifestyle is creating or, you know, that's happening. Uh, and really what we, we know is really no pill is going to do better than preventing the thing from happening to begin with. And oftentimes it can't even address the issue. So I think what you're describing is something to keep in mind. There are some medications that can be helpful, but to think that they are going to just solve the problem for you. One, it might not ever fully be solved, but two, the medications won't be able to um, combat the, the life choices you might be making and how you're handling things like stress and just your overall lifestyle and diet. Uh, and, and so it's going to take all of those. But as I think you've experienced from what you've shared with me and even a bit today, um, it's made such a huge impact on your overall well-being that 
you know it's well worth it, but it does require this whole mind-body, as you said, it's a mind-body issue, so it, take, it takes a mind-body solution to really address that. So we're at another commercial break. I think after the break, we can talk a bit more about the, the therapy and the mind-body type of skills and other aspects related to uh, what's going on with chronic digestive problems. Again, my guest today, clinical psychologist, Dr. Scott Rauer. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, my guest today, clinical psychologist, Dr. Scott Rauer. We are talking about helping people with chronic digestive problems. And Dr. Rauer, we were, you know, talking a bit, you'd mentioned about the gut-brain interaction, and I think that's such a key component of, of what we're talking about. So maybe you could talk a bit more about, about that and, and how that relates to our topic today of people dealing with chronic digestive problems. Absolutely. I would love to. Um, so it helps to understand that any chronic digestive issue is going to be on a, a spectrum. And the spectrum on one side, the more severe side, is a, a disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And on the other side of the spectrum um, has historically been called a functional uh, disorder. So irritable bowel syndrome is, has been called a functional disorder because there's no scope, scan, or blood test that's going to diagnose or point to one specific thing of like, oh, okay, this mm -hmm. is what's causing all this constipation. But we know it, it's not a, a psychiatric disorder. It's not a mental health problem that's causing that. It's a real thing, um, but there's no thing we can kind of point to on a, on a you can't take a picture of anything in the body to, to, uh, to, mm -hmm. to point to one, one factor here. Um, and so the really, really cool thing, I was sharing this with you the other day, um, uh, is that name functional disorder has actually been updated into disorders of the gut-brain interaction. Hmm. Um, and so it really points to, in a completely um, scientific backing, that this whole range of whatever chronic digestive symptom you might have is pointing back to the connection between the gut and the brain. Uh, so this applies for IBS and reflux, but also to the inflammatory bowel diseases as well. So to understand this a little bit, you kind of have to go back to the nervous system. And one of the main branches of the nervous system is called the autonomic nervous system. Autonomic just meaning it's automatic, it's subconscious. So your, your pulse you know, you don't have to, or, or your rate of breathing, you don't have to be thinking about these things. Thankfully, they're just automatic and subconscious. And so two um, of, the, of the pieces of the autonomic nervous system are what's called the sympathetic nervous system. And then a second piece would be the parasympathetic nervous system. And you might know these already by the terms, the fight and flight reaction the famous flight and fight reaction to stress is when that sympathetic nervous system gets activated. What's really useful for people that have digestive uh, problems to understand is the parasympathetic nervous system, the other part of the branch of the nervous system here, is responsible for what's called the rest and digest response of the body. So if that stress reaction keeps getting triggered it's kind of the gas pedal the gas pedal keeps getting triggered 
and you're constantly in this doing, doing, doing uh, mode onto the next thing, onto the next thing, just avoiding or not dealing with stress well, you're inhibiting the body's ability to uh, rest and digest, to, to have the um, reproductive, the digestive systems um, that are not immediately needed in a, in a fight or flight type of um, situation, uh, those get shut down. Hmm. And so that's a really big piece to understand. The other piece to understand is the, the third part of the nervous system. You have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branches. The third part of the nervous system is what's called the enteric nervous system. That is what's been called the second brain in, uh, it, it, that lives in the gut. The whole digestive system has an enormous amount of neurons, over a million, hundred million neurons, and interacts very deeply with the brain. So at a very, very deep level, uh, physically through the nerves and also chemically, the gut and the brain are very much connected. So this really leads to that kind of the take home point here, what this leads to unconsciously is when you have stress, it's going to cause more symptoms. Mm. And when you have symptoms, of course, it's going to cause more stress. And there's a vicious cycle that really starts to get deeper and deeper for people that are not attending to this part of, of their symptoms. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like when things are out of balance, then usually you do something uh, not healthy to try to create some like fake balance in the moment, but then it kind of exacerbates the problems going forward. So um, that totally makes sense. And yeah, when you're talking about this gas and brake and how many of us, we only think about the gas and we think the brake is something wrong. You know, we think of the brake B-R-A-K-E as like a B-R-E-A-K, which is like a bad type of thing, like to take a break, like you're not being mm. quote unquote productive or doing something good or you're being lazy or whatever the, the things that we think about. Um, but it totally makes sense that if you're not giving that space for the, the, the rest and digest aspect of your body to kick in to do its work of course how is it going to function appropriately if you're not giving it the opportunity to to do that and so that really made sense as you explained that and thinking as i said i'm reflecting on myself as well with everything we discussed of how i might not be paying attention to that as, as well at different times um, i was also thinking of when you're talking about diagnosing these different issues and that there isn't uh, you know one place to take a snapshot or one kind of test that's going to reveal reveal very clearly what's going on which i think does speak to the systemic part of what's happening it's it's such a system type of thing it's not just one thing that's not working uh, you know the right way or appropriately and like you're saying it's that gut brain interaction that's the issue um, and it reminds you of also mental illness in general we're seeing that even in my short lifetime of being in the field of psychology, I've seen a change from, and, and it still persists, this sense of, okay, well, depression is just a serotonin deficiency or what part of the brain is causing depression and that's it. And we're seeing more and more that most mental health issues and also what creates mental health is the connectivity of different parts in the whole system rather than it's just one problematic piece. Um, and really it's looking at this whole system. So it, it makes sense that here we're seeing it again with these chronic digestive problems. It, it's not that it's not real that we can't find one issue, but it, it speaks to how 
really health is created and how things break down, that it's a whole system-wide issue. And that's why the whole system has to be looked at and addressed to, to make things better. But it was just interesting, that kind of connection, I think, makes made sense to me as you were explaining that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the five kind of flags um, I, I have seen over time, um, not just people with digestive um, problems, but just humans in general, is when we kind of default to coping that's just short-term coping, mm-hmm. that's not actually effective. You know, the, the five I tend to see are worry. You know, worry is an attempt to um, control, mm-hmm. um, but is just very ineffective. Um, distraction, right, going to the phone, um, isolation, buying stuff. You know, Amazon is um, has, uh, is a very strong business for many reasons, but this is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. And then the last would be substances. Uh, and this is a really important one for people with um, digestive problems because one of the strongest emotionally regulating substances that we tend to turn to is food. Mm-hmm. But that's also... Um, for a lot of types of foods are going to make the symptoms worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so not that worry and distraction or isolation or buying stuff to make yourself feel better or substances like alcohol, marijuana, food are, are bad, but it's the overusing them at the expense of something that's more effective that really makes things worse. And And to really drive home the point of what you're saying, that this is the mental is absolutely affecting the physical mm-hmm. that that's not a, a really a question at all it there's um if you think about ibs ibs is really really common and uh that stands for irritable bowel syndrome what is the irritable the irritable is talking about the state of the nerves in the intestines mm. they become irritable because they become more exposed and more sensitive and when someone has um, not only symptoms that are not going away, but the, the, the stress that that's causing them, in addition to whatever stress might be going on in their lives, if they're not attending to that stress in effective ways, it's going to make those nerves more and more sensitive over time. It's called visceral hypersensitivity. And so that person even if the symptoms stay exactly the same, over time they're going to experience them as more and more intense, more and more painful. They're going to pick up on more and more subtle things that might feel a little off. And that then ties into the psychology because there's a hypervigilance then. There is this over, um, being overly attentive to anything that could feel off. Mm -hmm. And so there's then that, that negative cycle stress causing symptoms, symptoms causing stress. Yeah, it's so fascinating hearing you. First of all, I, you know, learning so much about the terms and the different ways they interact. But I was just imagining, uh, you know, you talked about that hypersensitivity, the visceral hypersensitivity and the hypervigilance. And that's exactly some like the terminology, maybe without the visceral, but we would talk about anxiety. And so I was imagining parents of an anxious child and their child is being anxious or being hypersensitive, hypervigilant and all that. And they might think, okay, let's just give a pill to my kid to calm them down rather than trying to understand what's making my child you know so on edge so uncomfortable so you know feeling this way and that's kind of we treat our 
body, you know, that child of our own and sense that wave, like, okay, I'm feeling this way. Let me just take something or something should fix it rather than, well, what's causing my body to respond um, in this way and looking at the, the whole system. So again, I think there's this mind gut you know, connection, but also there's so many connections, which I think makes sense because we try to, again, differentiate things, but we see there's so many similarities to different types of health and also different types of disorder, disease, and discomfort that we experience in different um, areas of life. And I think what you, you mentioned about those five flags or those, you know, the ways that we cope. And, you know, I've talked about this topic a lot recently and throughout this show that one of the indicators to me of mental health is being able to tolerate negative or uncomfortable feelings and not try to just quickly get rid of them because it leads to us doing these unhealthy things that then create a negative cycle rather than letting whatever we're experiencing pass or you know um, go through uh, us and so um, I think that was a good point you brought up and then lastly I wanted to mention I, I thought about graduate school and how I remember going through these uh, these cycles where I would be so tired you know stressed out, overworked and all that. And then I'd have to study at night and I'm like, oh, I'm too tired to study. So I'd have coffee at night to study. And then I couldn't sleep that night because I had coffee. And then the next day I'd be even more tired and the kind of the cycle would, would continue. And I'd find myself in these cycles that were hard to break because I had to quote unquote, get some work done, but really physically was not able to or capable. So I take something to help me take some coffee to help me. But then it would just further exacerbate what I was going through. So yeah, these cycles are vicious, as you said, and can make them very hard to break. But the good news is usually with cycles, if you are able to block, you know, take out one step in the cycle, you can create a, a positive cycle as well, you can kind of get things to go the other way. Because if you, for example, have less stress, um, then you won't have to you might not cope in those more unhealthy ways or have those unhealthy emotions. So then it'll be, you know, that feedback loop will get weaker over time. So I think that's the the good news. The bad news is how hard it is to break it. But the good news is if you can interfere somewhere in that cycle, you can oftentimes create some bigger changes. Yeah, so well said. And I, I, I you know, I think one of the things that's helpful to understand as well is that you don't need to be perfect. Like mm -hmm. I still one of my one of the biggest and the strongest symptoms I had to deal with is fatigue and as I said in the beginning like part of part of my uh, learning in this life is to kind of let go and bring into a more healthy and uh, spectrum this kind of wants and excitement about achieving stuff and it, so when I have fatigue and it's really getting in the way of that it really stresses me out and mm -hmm. I can see that I'm going towards the caffeine. That's the substance I abuse um, more than anything else. Mm. Um, and it's not that I never do it, but at least at this point, I know exactly what I'm doing and I don't need to be perfect. And if it does worsen things later, at least I have the understanding, the connection, and I'm less caught off guard. Yeah. It's like, oh, of course, yeah. Because I, because I drank coffee before doing that radio interview. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm almost. It's hard. I almost laughed five times while you're talking because I'm I'm sipping on my second coffee of the day as <laughs> as we're talking because I had to wake up very early this morning to take care of some things. So it was just kind of funny. I was yeah. like, oh, this is kind of funny as I'm looking at my half drink coffee. Um, but you're right. Yeah, I mean we're not going to be perfect and, and that's not required, but we can make things uh, much better by by taking care of some things. And even what you're describing is you're more aware of 
what's happening. Whereas before, maybe it could be more just like a, you would do it and not think about it. And it's kind of, well, I have to do this. Now you're aware and you might recognize you're going a little bit off of the, the track or even the fact that you want to go off track tells you that you're not feeling good or something's going on. Yeah, um, and then yeah, you can bring exactly. it back, bring it back to that, which I think makes sense. And so we are at another commercial break. I'm glad you uh, are able to stay on one more segment, which we'll do after uh, these commercials, which will now go deeper into um, the, the treatments and tools that people can have because like you have a lot of information that I was just in our brief talks learning about. So looking forward to having you share that with the listeners. Again, Dr. Scott Rauer is with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back again. My guest today, clinical psychologist, Dr. Scott Rauer, and we're talking about helping people with chronic digestive problems. And we've talked uh, all about it, including some of the help, but now we're going to get a little bit deeper into what are the resources, tools, therapies, techniques that are out there to help people who are dealing with chronic digestive problems. So Dr. Rauer, maybe you can um, talk about it. I know you have broken it down to me in three main categories. So we'll start with those. The first one is um, therapy. Yeah. So this is a surprising one for a lot of people, right? And uh, um, that therapy can has been empirically supported, uh, research supported to be really helpful. Um, most of that research is for people with IBS, but it does extend to um, all of the uh, chronic digestive issues. Um, and there are people that are specifically trained in what's called psychogastroenterology or GI psychology that, um, that have a, a range of tools. And the most kind of general tool would be psychotherapy. And how, you might wonder, how, how would therapy help me with, you know, chronic diarrhea? And part of it is, you know, it's, it's not a solution um, but it is an effective tool because when you start to understand that between the symptoms and the stress and then the stress causing more symptoms, there's a lot going on under the surface. Mm. And so there are specific types of therapy um, called cognitive behavioral therapy or a related uh, or a, a type of cognitive behavioral therapy specifically called acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT for short. Uh, they, these psychologists are trained in this type of therapy to help people with chronic GI disorders and, uh, and diseases to understand what's going on. They, you know, you could have um, diarrhea and diarrhea to someone that has chronic diarrhea is not the same as someone else that just kind of randomly has that symptom. It's setting off a whole cascade. It's setting off uh, the, the, the gas pedal, the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response is immediately kicked in which then causes um, a, maybe a, a fear response. And then that fear response is causing thoughts of, oh no, oh my, oh my gosh, it's starting again. And then they, that, they might then do some kind of automatic pilot um, avoidance behavior. They might go into worry. And then that is dysregulating the gut-brain connection further, which then is gonna cause worse symptoms. And it's kind of all happening outside of someone's awareness. So when you have this awareness and you start to identify these different pieces, you can interrupt this cycle and you can start to apply um, skills and tools that will help just slow the whole process down and, and maybe even pause the cycle. Hmm. 
Uh, that's very interesting. And I think it, as you said, maybe people initially might be surprised to hear therapy for a GI issue. But going back to a theme that's come up in our discussion today, this mind-body connection or it's something so holistic and the emotions are a big part of the process or what's happening psychologically, I think it, it totally makes sense that uh, it can be helpful. And you mentioned those avoidance behaviors that could come up and we also alluded to them a bit earlier as well but yeah that's something that people I know with um, GI issues and chronic digestive problems they'll at times you know you know I know this last year everyone was staying at home but they'll avoid leaving the house or they won't commit to certain types of activities that might take a long time or might uh, be away from a restroom um, but you know that's something very common I think that people experience uh, if I'm not mistaken Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's understandable, but those are mm -hmm. blunt instruments. Mm -hmm. And you're eliminating risk, but you're also eliminating resources. You're right. eliminating your social life. You're eliminating all these things. And thankfully, there are ways to um, respond to these really uncomfortable and uncertain situations in, in more nuanced uh, ways. Mm -hmm. And, and so yeah. if someone did want to go down that route and, like, find someone that is trained in this kind of gastroenterology, psychogastroenterology, what you would want to do is you want to Google GI, uh, GI psych directory. Mm -hmm. That will bring you to what's called the Rome uh, gastroenterology um, psych directory. But if you just Google that, you'll find it. Yeah, that's good to know. GI psych directory, because I was thinking as you were talking, I've I've had clients who have digestive problems, which, of course, um, it's such a common issue. People are going to have it. You know, you're going to inevitably see people. But I think if it was their main issue um, and really they needed that focus, I think it's important to make sure your therapist is is trained and equipped to help you with that. And for example, that's not something I've been specifically trained on. So I think it's important to remember that just because someone you might think they're, you've heard from someone, oh, I've had a good therapist, or you get recommended by someone, it doesn't mean they uh, specialize in what you're dealing with. And so it's important to be mindful of that, I guess, pun intended, being mindful um, of that issue that, you know, you want to make sure the therapist has that background and training to help you uh, with what you're, you're dealing with. And, you know, as you mentioned, those things of avoiding bathrooms, and I was, you know, thinking about that, or avoiding places where they might, you know, have an accident. It's very similar to what, when we talk about panic disorder and agoraphobia. So it's that people might not want to be somewhere that if they have a panic attack, they can't escape or they can't leave. It just to me felt something similar to that. And there's obviously an anxiety theme in both of those as well. And they also lead to avoidance behaviors to cope with that, which is often in the case with anxiety, we try to avoid uh, what we're worried about or what makes us, makes us anxious. Um, I don't know if you had any more to add on that, uh, the psychotherapy side before we maybe go on to diet. No, you know, it's just that this route is effective and helpful specifically for people where the depression or anxiety is mostly being caused by the GI issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but psychotherapy is not probably the best option for most people because it can be expensive, it can be inconvenient, and honestly, there's not enough people trained in this area to help the amount of people that can be helped. Hmm. So these other two areas that we'll talk about now um, are probably more applicable to most people. Okay, got it. So yeah, we'll get into those, but yeah, so you can hopefully find someone. I think it's been interesting this year with the pandemic, uh, telehealth has become much more 
um, common. And of course, there's sometimes some legal and ethical restrictions about seeing clients and patients in different jurisdictions and things like that. But hopefully that can also make it easier for someone, let's say if they have a GI psych issue uh, and they don't have a GI psych trained therapist in their immediate vicinity, maybe they can connect with someone using some kind of online resources. So I hope people will look for that. But yeah, moving on. Um, the second one, which you did touch on earlier, but it's re- which makes sense is related to diet. So maybe you can elaborate on that a bit. Yeah, I'm not really trained in this area, so I don't want to go outside my scope, but I just wanted people to know that this um, is a empirically supported intervention specifically for people with irritable bowel syndrome. The FODMAPS diet um, is something that was developed at a place called uh, the Monash University um, and has had a whole lot of studies to replicate that this is actually quite effective. About 70% of people that follow the FODMAPS, F-O-D-M-A-P-S diet get significant relief. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to a disease like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, it gets much more complicated, and there are other diets um, that are helpful. I just have found personally it has been essential for me to to mm-hmm. really get clear on my, my diet um, that, you know, attending to my stress isn't nearly enough. I need to be on medications. I need to be really good on my diet, and I also, the third leg of the stool for me, Mm-hmm. is attending to the stress in, in really um, intentional ways. Yeah, and we'll get so into the third category. Yeah, and I think that's that's a huge one. And, um, you know, the, all of these tools and like the diet, it, it makes a huge impact. But I think, again, it, it's that notion that it's a kind of like a slow burn. It's not that if you change your diet one day, all of a sudden all these issues are going to disappear. It, it takes time and each piece of the puzzle uh, can make some impact. But I think we have to be, again, aware of, most big issues, especially if you've been dealing with it for a while, it's not going to, you know, almost anything that makes it disappear too quickly, you might want to be skeptical about because it probably is doing something that's not good. So if you're anxious your whole life, the only way you're going to not be anxious tomorrow is if someone gives you some kind of medication that, you know, takes away your anxiety, which is not good for long-term use. So that can't be your long-term solution. So often things that work really quickly or almost too fast there's something negative about it that you want to be mindful of and we're always looking for the quick fix especially if you're feeling pain or discomfort of course we want it to go away quickly but we do have to be aware and again mindful that those types of solutions oftentimes are not the ones that are going to help us long term and might be creating their own problem but diet i'm sure is huge when it comes to dealing with gi issues but i can also imagine the the progress is slow and um, you know, over time, it can make a huge impact, but you have to be ready that it has to be a, a consistent part of your life. As you mentioned before, you won't be perfect, but the better you adhere to some types of guidelines. And, and some of the guidelines are external, but a lot of them are internal, which relates to part three of seeing what works for your body, I'm sure. Um, but if you follow those, then you'll over time make, make some progress. But uh, we can go to the third and big key, uh, you know, as you said, the third part of the stool there is maybe pun intended. Okay, I shouldn't have said that. But um, <laughs> mind-body skills is a uh, the big part of, of treating yeah. this or dealing with this. Yeah. So the, this last hour, you know, we've been laying the whole framework of mm-hmm. why why this, you know, is bigger than just your intestines and all the different connections in the mind of the body and all that stuff. And to give you very practical take-home uh, things you can you can check out for yourself. There are three main uh, mind-body skills 
that I think would be worth checking out. The first one is kind of a, a surprise, was a surprise to me. I know it's a surprise to Dr. Mm-hmm. Halakwi. Um, medical hypnotherapy um, is something that I didn't think that there was really much to it, at least from a empirical point of view, but there's a specific type of hypnosis, medical hypnosis called gut-directed hypnotherapy that has been studied very uh, intensely um, for specifically for irritable bowel syndrome and is has shown to be just as the same as the FODMAPS diet, about 70% of people get very significant results from it. Mm. Um, there's, it isn't as clear for the diseases of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's. Um, it seems to be helpful, but is, is not a, as definitive as IBS. Um, but if you search for gut-directed hypnotherapy, that's specifically, you don't want to just go to someone that's a hypnotherapist. Um, if you want to check this out and go into it, that's specifically the protocol that you want done for you is gut-directed hypnotherapy. Yeah, and we talked about this on, on the phone when you mentioned this to me. I, I didn't know. And, uh, you know, hypnotherapy has some mixed, you know, you hear mixed things about it. And so I didn't know that there was this evidence-based treatment, which you're saying is fairly effective. Um, and we always want to be open that we might think we know something about it, some kind of modality or some type of treatment, but uh, we want to be open to, to hearing the evidence. So that, that to me was quite interesting that there's a gut-directed hypnotherapy that has um, evidence supporting that it can be helpful in dealing with these types of issues. Uh, yeah, going on uh, to the, the next one, I think, is a big tool. And this is one of those things that a lot of the things we talk about today, I think is for everyone. You know, it's not like just if you have this issue, it reminds you of when you just talk about physical health, if someone says, oh, if you have diabetes or heart disease, like eat healthy, exercise. I mean, those are things that are good for all human beings, you know, but maybe specifically can have a bigger impact. But uh, I think that the next one we were going to get into is mindful meditation. Yeah. Um, so this is one that has just been a huge part of my life. Um, and as I said in the beginning of our talking today, uh, something that I just got into a lot for professional reasons, and then it has, honestly, it's changed my life. It's, it's opened me up into a whole spiritual part of my life that is, is now quite important to me, uh, really a core value for me, um, and I really owe that to, to mindfulness. Um, but it has significantly helped me um, understand and work my stress uh, and so much so that I started teaching uh, courses specifically for people with chronic GI problems mm. uh, the, the website I have for that is uh, restanddigest.org restanddigest.org um, and so if you go on there it's specifically written for people with inflammatory bowel disease um, I'll probably open that up to anyone that has chronic digestive uh, disorders uh, or symptoms because of all the reasons we've talked about today. Um, and it, it's actually, there's not as much, as much research here specifically uh, for GI conditions, but there is some, and there's a whole lot of data about the efficacy of mindfulness for other related medical uh, issues. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, it's something that's, I think, helpful for everyone. Uh, as I mentioned, I do want to mention again, restanddigest.org. Is that right? Yep. So people right. can join you uh, for those. And I'll probably post that on my social media just so 
if people didn't get a chance to jot that that down. But it makes sense, you know, for as we were talking before about being disconnected to ourselves, which I think so much of what happens in modern day society contributes to disconnection. And, it, you know, it's like we have to make these efforts to reconnect or at least, again, be mindful of it to, to make that happen. So if you're dealing with your body, if you're not connected to it, it's going to be hard for you to get the information your body is trying to give you of how to take care of it better. So I think it completely makes sense that a big component here would be the, the mindfulness and the meditation. And I know you're going to, in that course, talk about some things. Is there, in general, I, I hear people ask me a lot, what, what's the best type or what's the, you know, the right way to meditate? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I usually have my own kind of answers on that, but I was wondering what you think about that. Uh, what's the best? You know, um, meditation is extremely simple. Mm-hmm but not easy at all. The mind mm-hmm. really does not like meditation <laughs> because yeah. in a lot of ways you're letting go of the mind itself. And it's really, it, meditation is a difficult tool um, for most people, myself included, mm-hmm. um, because you're needing to break up that momentum of doing. And the mind doesn't like to let go of that momentum into just being very simply being. Um, and so there's a lot of different routes um, to how to do meditation. There's um, mindfulness, there's concentration-based meditation. There's a whole lot of different uh, routes. Really, at the end of the day, if you get into it, you'll find your own kind of natural stuff that you gravitate towards. It's the, the most important thing, rather than the best type, is finding some way to make it a consistent part of your lifestyle, because if you're doing it an hour every Sunday night, it's really not nearly as effective as if you're just doing 10 minutes every morning. Mm. Yeah, I think I realize I set you up maybe in a bad way because um, my my general response is kind of the same thing that there isn't really one good kind or best kind. But I kind of said like, Dr. Rauer, tell us the best kind of meditation. And I was like, nope, there isn't one. (laughs) But uh, that's the real question. Yeah. (laughs) But I do get that a lot. People will say, well, which one should I do? And another analogy I like for that is it reminds you of like exercise. And it's like, so there isn't one way to exercise, but they're all, you know, good. So it's not, no, you have to bike or you have to run or you have to, you know, swim. You know, they're all good and you have to find one that I think resonates and works for you that you can do and want to do consistently. But yeah. from my experience and what I've read and seen, I don't think there's one right best way to do it. You have to find the way that, you know, some people like guided, some people like to be in complete silence, some yeah. people like to do it in retreats and with a group, you know, there, there's so many different things. But I think your um, comment and recommendation that try to find something you can do daily and consistently is very important and it's like anything you have to make it a kind of a non-negotiable part of your day or you know make it something that's scheduled in if you try to find time to meditate you you won't find it because you'll probably try to escape it as you said it's it's funny to think something so simple as saying do essentially nothing or it really isn't but it's kind of like doing nothing can be so hard but myself I've experienced it in so many of my clients when you bring it up they'll say how challenging it was you know you say just try five minutes and they're like I thought my iPhone uh, timer was broken or I maybe I <laughs> Maybe I didn't start it or something. They checked yeah. it like three times. So uh, it is quite fascinating, but I think it does point to how much we're avoiding. You know, you said it, we don't like to break that cycle. And then also I think yeah. we avoid so much of feeling the physical and emotional that's actually going on within us. Um, and it's hard to slow down and people yeah. are, are very much yeah. avoiding that. That's, I mean, that's 
really breaks into, I really wanted to make sure we touch on this last piece here. Mm-hmm. Um, and we might have to go to commercial break soon, but you're the, um, the, 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 a bunch of things you're talking about right now. Meditation is very effective. I, I love it when clients of mine that I'm doing psychotherapy with um, get into it because the depth and the speed of the psychotherapy process just increases. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a hard skill. It's not an easy skill and one you have to be committed to. And something that I'm really excited about right now is something that's called heart rate variability mm-hmm. um, training, heart rate va- va- variability biofeedback. And the reason, there's a lot of reasons I'm really excited about it right now. One of them is it might be easier to learn and potentially more um, effective specifically for GI issues. Mm. Um, That's still an open question. And one of the things that interferes with anyone developing one of these mind-body skills is often we don't have a community. You know, it's hard to kind Mm -hmm. of have accountability um, and have something be consistent if we don't have some type of community or, or people we're relating to about this new thing. And so for that reason, and because I really want to investigate this this area of, of mind-body skill called heart rate variability biofeedback, I'm offering a free um, book club uh, for people that have a, consist- a chronic GI problem and they're really wanting to be proactive and think there's something to what we're talking about today and are interested in, in learning this tool. Um, so we'll be doing this. I think we have about 30-something people signed up so far. Um, so it'll start probably sooner than later. If anyone wants to check out what this heart rate variability thing is all about, um, and maybe join in on the book club with us, the website for that, I didn't get a chance to put it on that rest and digest website before our talk. So I just made this quick, um, URL. The, the website would be tiny as in small, tinyurl.com forward slash GI, GI class. Okay. Yeah. T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com forward slash G-I class. Very cool. And as I said, I'll try to post those on my, uh, maybe you can send me those in a way that I can post that uh, on social media. You know, you created like a website in 10 seconds. I'm saying, can you tell me how to post this in a way that people can click on the link so they can uh, (laughs) get to your, your great information. But yeah, thank you for sharing, sharing that. And yeah, that's a new area. I've seen some things about even depression related to heart rate variability and different aspects of mental health. I didn't know about this uh, GI component to it as well. Um, I I would want to keep you on even longer, but we do have to, I know you got to go, so we got to slowly wrap up, but uh, I I so appreciate you coming on Dr. Rauer. And as you mentioned, we talked about it a few times. We were Uh, classmates we met in graduate school and it's pretty crazy i'm not sure if you've realized this but i think almost not to the day but to this week or so it's 10 years from our graduation 10 years i realized that (laughs) yeah this week yeah i think it was june i I think it was the first week of june was our graduation if i recall something like that um Mm -hmm. of 2011 so it was great when i thought about that uh this before you were coming on this week i was like that is just it doesn't feel like it but uh, i'm very grateful to you as a friend uh, but then also as a colleague who's taught me so much but mostly I'd have to say as a friend, I'm so grateful because it was so meaningful to have you um, with, you know, in my graduate school experience and beyond. So um, just wanted to say appreciate you and, and looking forward to having you back on sometime soon. I would I would love that. And I um, 
I no longer live in Los Angeles. I'm up mm. in Oregon, mm-hmm. and one of the the biggest things I miss is our friendship. Mm. And you uh, you have certainly made graduate school so much more of a, a, a rich and um, fulfilling experience for me. Um, I'm sure your listeners understand and get your sense of humor that like it, it peeks through with your puns and such, but they probably don't realize really how funny you are. That is one of your shining qualities that I just wanted your listeners to know that like when you're off the air and not having to be your kind of professional self, especially in holding all that responsibility, you are hilarious, oh, and I kind, just wanted sir. them to know that. Well, thank you. And actually, it's funny, a holistic kind of thing. I'm like, I try to, I'm trying to incorporate that even more, being because it's more a part of an aspect of me. But that was very kind. Uh, we can continue our bromance of uh, complimenting each other off the <laughs> air. But again, appreciate you so much. Thank you, Dr. Scott Rauer. Uh, I'll post some of that information that you shared that people thank can you. kind of join with you in the learning process. But really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about these important issues. I appreciate it as well. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Let's go to commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So again, a big thank you to Dr. Scott Rauer for joining me on the show to discuss in detail about how we can help people with chronic digestive problems. But of course, a lot of the information wasn't just people suffering from something that's a serious chronic digestive issue, but I think all of us could benefit from being more mindful, being aware of how um, stress and our feelings are affecting our body and that cycle that it creates. And as we were talking, um, it left me with this thought about just, you know, we think about what we're doing in life in general and how, as he mentioned, we can be focused on achievement or being uh, productive and doing certain things that we think that's what life is about. But really, if we take a step back, we think, what, what are we doing it all for? What's the point of of living and you know we can get into a whole discussion of the meaning and purpose of life um, and it will relate to what I'll talk about now but it's just this sense that shouldn't we be living life in a way to take care of ourselves or we should be taken care of or as a society we should um, want to create a type of life and living that people can function in a healthy way and really we don't have that right now at all with how um, our society works or doesn't work and emphasis on the word work which I'll probably get into a bit too that we look at things as if we do the things that are quote unquote important making money or working or doing certain things and then taking care of ourselves comes afterwards it's kind of like this afterthought okay I'll, I'll sleep once I get everything done I'll rest once everything is taken care of I'll listen to my body once there's nothing left to do but we have the formula backwards or we have the recipe backwards. We need to be listening to ourselves and our bodies and seeing what we need first and then filling in our time with what we can do once I get, let's say, enough sleep. And I know this is might sound idealistic, not saying that every night you're going to get exactly enough sleep. Well, you know, that's not going to happen, but that our focus or the way we look at things should be the other way around. Um, I think sleep is a great example of that because most people think, well, I, I sleep once I'm done with everything rather than I, I should make sure I'm getting enough sleep and then I can do what I can do with the time that is there, which is enough, but um, we often feel like it's not. And so this also echoes the 
thoughts and sentiments in the book that I discussed uh, last week, or it's a book from two weeks ago, Work by uh, James Suzman, which I, for me was very eye-opening looking at how really to survive our ancestors and even current hunter-gatherer tribes uh, work 15 hours a week, and that's enough to then survive and then to live. You know, we, we uh, in one of those old adages, we like, live to work, like the whole point of life seems to be for many of us working and if we're not working we're not doing anything whereas really living is about much more than that yet i do hope that the pandemic has created a lot of these forced resets although we're kind of going back to normal um, but it did change i think a lot of people's perception or experience of things like work and what we're doing with our time and how much time you're spending with your family and people and sometimes might have felt forced to be spending too much time with family and that did create its own issues of course but i think it did make people reevaluate why was normal where i was away from everyone so many hours and not getting enough sleep and not being able to attend to myself and and to foster the important relationships in my life why was that normal and so normal usually what that means is what is you know coming from that word the norm it means what most people are doing or expecting to do but normal does not have to do anything with being healthy just because something is the norm doesn't mean it is healthy at all but unfortunately one of the positive and negative parts about us human beings is we're social beings that get heavily impacted by what we see in our environment and so if you're exposed to a world where people work 10 12 hours a day or at least eight and the expectation is that that's the most important thing and these things that we might think of as insignificant like your relationships those things come afterward well then you think that's the way the world is or even that it's natural it can start to feel like, well, this is how we're supposed to be. Um, it's lazy if you don't work this many hours. You won't feel good if you don't work this many hours. Well, you don't feel good if you don't work super hard the way that it's de uh, you know defined. Not because I think it's actually you need that to feel good, but because you're not meeting this norm and these values that society is putting on you. So you feel like a failure. If everyone is working, you know, eight hours and really the good people are working 10 hours a day, then if I'm not working 10 hours a day, I'm a loser or I'm weak or I'm not smart or I'm not uh, a hustler or whatever else kind of word, you know, people might use to reinforce these ideas that if you're not working yourself to the bone, you're doing something wrong. So we have to recognize this norm and what we consider normal is very, very unhealthy for our physical bodies, our mental bodies, and for the relationships in our life. So I remember this early in the pandemic talking about these issues, and it's come up throughout the pandemic, which I guess it's hard to say when does the pandemic end. I know here in Los Angeles, June 15th, everything's like opening up and, you know, there's mixed feelings about a lot of these issues, but I don't know when we consider the pandemic over. But one of the themes that I was thinking about throughout was I was hoping that it makes us reevaluate some of these things about the way we live life. You know, I've talked with parents that um, they had a baby during the pandemic, including my cousin Pega, who it's her birthday today, actually. Happy birthday, Pega. I love you very much. And of course, your baby Colette. And so she had Colette during the pandemic. Um, but a lot of parents who have had babies or have young children during the pandemic, they probably spent 
more time now sometimes again more time than maybe they wanted but especially with their babies more time than they ever would have in quote unquote normal society that we've been living in and so i think i would hope as a society for those parents they experienced it but we also realized isn't this how it should be shouldn't parents get a lot of times with their babies and maybe actually more importantly putting it the other way around shouldn't babies get a lot of time with their parents when they're newborns and also as they get older that we emphasize those things Uh, but in talking with dr rauer today did bring to mind these issues of the way ways that we work and what we've considered normal and how much you're supposed to work and and really it almost dictates or um, reinforces this type of mindset of a lack of mindfulness the mindset of lack of being in touch and lack of being mindful because if you really listened to your body and listened to your feelings you wouldn't be able to keep going the way you do and unfortunately what usually happens is we don't listen and then later on it catches up to us in a way that we can no longer ignore if you don't pay attention to the faint cries of your body it'll start yelling at you till you start doing something about it or you have no choice but to do something about it but i think it's uh, it was just interesting to talk to dr rauer and hear him discuss uh, the way the mind body interaction works and see how much most of us most of the time and really what society values and makes the norms are completely unhealthy ideals and ideas that don't create health and well-being and just create suffering and then when you suffer as he said you feel bad about it because you think something's wrong with you if everyone else is doing this but i'm the only one you're not the only one but i'm the only one going through these types of symptoms something really must be wrong and so you hide it even more which that stigma leads to more suffering and more shame and i didn't get to ask dr rauer this but i would imagine he has this, this experience that when people finally come to him there is a finally in the sense that they've been suffering for a long time tried so many things tried to deny it hide it mask it and finally they're seeking help and i see the same thing with mental health issues in general that when someone is i was going to say sitting on my couch but for the last year it's been video sessions so popping up on my phone or laptop um, i know that very often they've been suffering for years so it's not that they've been going through something for a short amount of time and are seeking help but because of the stigma of mental health issues and of seeking out um, uh, mental health services people are usually not getting help when they're suffering it's been a long time coming because they wanted to hide it or deny the problem or we're ashamed to get help so i hope one we can really look at how we're prioritizing life and the ways we spend our times and take care of ourselves and don't take care of ourselves but then also when we're suffering or having pain that we recognize this is part of being human that we go through different types of pains and we can seek help out sooner rather than later and not suffer in silence because of the stigma and the taboo all right let's go into our last commercial break we'll be right back back in the last segment i wanted to talk about communication and actually in a way it relates to the topic i'll try to tie it into the topic we're talking about before about the the mind body connection the gut brain connection that dr rauer was talking about and of course there's a lot of miscommunication that happens but a lot more what we might recognize is that it's about missed communication so there's miscommunication and missed communication and so i was going to talk about this in the context of relationships because i see that very often people say oh we had a miscommunication but really what they're talking about is that there was a missed communication meaning that 
the effort wasn't made to actually communicate, talk about, explain, explore what is going on. So a miscommunication would be if I told my friend, hey, let's let's hang out next Monday. And they say, okay. And now by next Monday, they thought I meant not this coming Monday, the Monday of the following week, but I meant this coming Monday when I said next Monday. And so we had a miscommunication. We, we heard the same, you know, they heard what I said, but we understood it differently. And so because of that, we have this, you know, issue come up because of that. Monday comes and I'm waiting for my friend and then, you know, he doesn't show up and I say, hey, what happened? And then he says, well, you said next Monday. And then we see, oh, we had a miscommunication. Now, even there, we there could have been maybe you can say a missed communication. It could have been explained more clearly, um, but it's more to me, we can say it as a miscommunication. Something was lost in the communication. But what we see happen in relationships much more, but is also sometimes called miscommunication or, you know, having a problem with communication in a different way, is the missed communication. Things are not talked about. So the partner says, oh, you know, we had this disagreement and it was because of a a miscommunication. But if you look a little deeper, it wasn't that they talked about something and took different things from that same communication, but rather that they didn't talk about something important or that was necessary to prevent this argument. So one person was holding on to some feelings about something and later on it became an issue and they think, oh, we miscommunicated. Well, really, no, it's more that you missed the communication. You did not create that. And that's why I try to encourage with families, with couples, but also if I work with an individual, looking at what are the difficult conversations that you have been avoiding in your relationship. And the reason why I said it can uh, compare to what we talked about today is that very often it's not that we're misunderstanding what our body is telling us, but we're not even listening to our body or listening to our brain in the sense of, as he was talking about meditation and mindfulness, we're not even hearing it or trying to hear that voice that might be telling us, I need a break or I need to slow down or when you eat this, it doesn't feel good or whatever else um, the body and the brain might be trying to tell us. We're not even listening So to me, that wouldn't be a miscommunication. It would be miscommunication. The lack of the communication is what's creating a problem. And so we have to turn and listen to our body and our brain, which can be uncomfortable because anytime we do that, you're going to get closer to whatever pains or discomforts are there. When people are... um, you know, turning to their phones, which is one of those cliche things we talk about, but I see it happen so much and I've experienced it with myself. The moment there is a break in whatever they're doing or they're waiting for something, rather than just wait and maybe just see what they're feeling, we reach for our phone not to do anything really important or necessary, but just to distract ourselves to avoid feeling. I don't want to even feel what I'm feeling or know what I'm feeling probably because I know it's not good, so I want to get away from it, rather than just sitting there and feeling, oh, maybe I'm kind of sad or worried about something or feeling lonely or a bunch of other feelings, also physical feelings, oh, I'm tired or this part of my body hurts. And we're trying to avoid being in touch with that, so we try to just distract ourselves. Some people even do this to the point where, um, you know, they to the moment they fall asleep, They don't want to be 
with themselves. And so they watch TV and they fall asleep with the TV on. And not saying that's the only reason people do this, but sometimes they might have a sleep issue, which might be related to even these same things. But nonetheless, it's in a way of I never want to just be alone with my thoughts and my feelings. So I need something to distract me, some noise, some stimulation until the moment that I fall asleep. And then I wake up and we start all over again, wake up, grab your phone and and go on your day and really never have those moments that we're paying attention to what's there. So interestingly, when we talk about miscommunication and miscommunication, you know, often we think in the context of relationships, but that primary relationship that we have is the one with ourselves. And almost all of us will recognize if we take a look at it, that we are missing a lot of the communication between our, us and ourselves of recognizing what I feel, what I want, um, what's hurting me, what doesn't feel good. And feelings essentially, it's not that they are this, uh, the, the only thing that matters. So I know that sometimes when I talk about being in touch with your feelings, what it brings to mind to people is that, okay, then you just become purely emotional. So if you're angry, you just lash out. If you're sad, you only stay cr sad and don't do anything about it. If you're, you know, feel like doing something, you just do that thing. And that's not at all what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating for is recognizing that that's a source of information, a big source and a very important source of information. But how you choose to act with that information, uh, it doesn't mean it's just that the feelings are going to dictate what you do. They're going to inform you, but not dictate. So I know I'm sad and it makes me want to do this, but I want to go do this instead. Or I'm angry and it makes me want to lash out or show that anger, but I see that this is not the right context. It's actually going to hurt me if I respond in that way. So I choose to do something else, but it's still important for me to feel the anger. Most of us won't even be aware of that and not recognize that either uh, if we're not aware of that anger, I might take it out on myself in some way. I might take it out on someone else who wasn't the one that hurt me. Or if uh, that same person, something happens later on that's maybe minor, I might react really strongly because I'm still holding on to that anger that I might not have even been aware of from before. So we can recognize that most of our communication issues aren't coming from a miscommunication. It's coming from miscommunication. And coming back to relationships, a big part of what's happening in therapy is I try to facilitate with couples overcoming or, you know, communicating those missed communications, the things they felt from early on in the relationship, what's going on now, conversations they haven't had, even just conversations, you know, a lot of times it's about preventing things from happening. So let's talk about this issue before it comes up, or let's talk about something that we're going to experience soon together. This is why premarital counseling can be so helpful. It's definitely to look at the problems you have in your relationship and to work on them, because if you don't, problems just get worse. They don't just get better if you don't do anything about them. But it's also to prepare for life together. How are we going to face uh, these different things. Um, actually, it brings to mind a wonderful book that I discussed last year, Eight Dates, um, by John and Julie Gottman. And the I think it was Schwartz was the, fan, the other couple um, who wrote the book together, which essentially was encouraging and facilitating these eight big areas of life for couples to communicate about them. And so it's not because couples have miscommunicated about those issues, but because they know that these serious aspects and components of life probably haven't been talked about or talked about in nearly enough detail to clearly communicate and understand one another and to prepare for their future together. 
So it's to prevent these missed communications by facilitating conversations on very important topics. And that's why I actually have recommended that book to many individuals for their relationships or to couples to read together because I know that even in therapy we can facilitate a lot of those important conversations but there's going to be more of them to be had and they need to have them. So we have to recognize that to be in a good relationship with any with ourselves or between two people to maintain a healthy, happy, strong relationship, it requires these constant communications because it's like the information. If you are taking care of your car, you notice every so often, okay, the gas, that's a more regular one, but you still have to pay attention to that. But other indicators of your tires and your um, whatever else is going on in the car and the brakes and different things that are they're happening, you want that information you don't want oh don't tell me if uh you know this part is not working because that doesn't feel good or i don't want to know about it you need to know it has to communicate to you so in a relationship you have to make the effort to communicate about what you're feeling not just about negative things about painful things those are very important but planning and preparing for the things that are are coming up and so what i see in therapy very often is people coming in and it's not that they can't solve the issue but they haven't even addressed the issue And it's not that all problems can be fixed, but no problem can be fixed if it's not faced. I think James Baldwin has a quote that's similar to that, which I think is very powerful. You can't fix everything, but there's no way you can fix a problem if you don't first face the problem and understand that this is a problem, which means that we have to have that uncomfortable conversation about, oh, you know, it seems like we have this issue. And that is the scary part. One is we don't even know if we can fix it because not all all issues can be fixed. Actually, John Gottman, who I mentioned, one of the authors on the book Eight Dates, in his research and extensive research on couples, he's found that I think the majority, I forgot the percentage of issues that couples have can't be solved. So you can't fix them. Now, doesn't mean you can't learn how to live with them better. Another theme that's come up today that we might not be able to remove a problem, but we can definitely reduce the negative impact it is having on us. But so when we open up a conversation, it might be an intractable problem, one that we won't be able to fully solve. That doesn't feel very good. feels a little bit risky. But also there's intense feelings that can come up. There can be a sense of rejection or vulnerability that might come up in bringing up many issues. Lots of couples are afraid, well, if I bring this up, what if it leads to big fights and it leads to divorce? It's understandable that anxiety can pop up, but you have to ask yourself if we can't handle this conversation, how likely are we to handle life together and this marriage? And unfortunately, very often couples choose that option of maybe if we avoid it, it goes away or it's going to be safer or easier, but then the problem keeps building and ends up hurting them somewhere down the line. So I wanted to end today focusing on this theme that looking at your life and rather than calling it miscommunication, which kind of seems like, oh, I guess we just understood it differently. That does happen. Absolutely. But recognizing that most of our issues of communication are coming from missed communication when we're not having the conversations that we need to have and it's up to us to initiate them they almost never will feel good to have they almost never uh, will be something you look forward to but we can recognize that as is often the case sometimes the hard thing is the right thing we don't want to take the easy way out we want to have the hard conversations to help us get to a better place and to avoid the missed communication which is in our control
Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Again, a big thank you to clinical psychologist and my good friend, Dr. Scott Rauer, who joined me today to talk about helping people with chronic digestive problems. Looking forward to having him again on the show sometime soon. As always, a big thank you to Ghazali here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.